The following program is made possible in part by Organic Valley Family of Farms. Organic and family-owned since 1988. Learn more at organicvalley.coop. Also by Park Foundation, dedicated to heightening public awareness of critical issues, as well as by the generous support of listeners like you. How clean a car would you buy if the exhaust pipe, instead of being aimed at pedestrians, were simply plumbed into the passenger compartment? Well, probably pretty clean. We breathe air deep into the most moist, warm, intimate parts of our bodies, and we fuse to the air. You can't draw a line and say, the air ends here, and I begin there. There is no line. The air is in us. We are the air in the most profound way. Biomimicry simply acknowledges that we're surrounded by genius and that we need help. This very young species that we are, we have to learn how to be well adapted here. In our culture, we're scolded for being so arrogant to think that we're smart. An individual is not smart, according to our culture. An individual is just merely lucky that he's part of a system that has this intelligence that happens to reside in them. And he says that someday, after we have mastered the winds, the waves, the tides, and gravity, we shall harness for good the energies of love. And then, for the second time in the history of the world, we will have discovered fire. It's all alive. It's all connected. It's all intelligent. It's all relatives. Have you ever wondered why the Earth's atmosphere has remained relatively constant over long periods of time? Or why the ratio of oxygen has remained at just the right level? After all, just a small increase or decrease in the amount of oxygen would either set the atmosphere on fire or kill most life forms. Or how it is that the oceans have maintained just the right salt concentration favorable to life? Or how the temperature range that life depends on has managed to remain relatively constant? Scientists call it the Gaia hypothesis. The entire symphony of all living things self-regulates the Earth's conditions to make the physical environment hospitable for them, in the same way our bodies know how to regulate themselves. You might think of it as a vast hospitality enterprise. Or in the words of naturalist Janine Benyus, what life does is create conditions conducive to life. Of course, for millennia, indigenous peoples, the world's old growth cultures, have held exactly this Gaian view, that it's all alive, it's all connected, it's all intelligent, it's all relatives. At this critical moment, for the first time in history, humanity has the capacity to destroy the conditions conducive to life on a global scale. In the next hour, we invite you to explore the time-tested processes, dynamics, and recipes that have allowed life to flourish during 3.8 billion years of evolution. Our guides are scientific and social innovators known as the Bioneers. They say the solutions are largely present if we just ask nature. I'm Neil Harvey. I'll be your host. Welcome to Natural Magic, the Earth Hospitality Enterprise. Around 1990, quite a number of scientists began to prophesy that we really had the decade of the 1990s to begin reversing the environmental damage that we've created. And I was very, very concerned about that situation and took it to heart. 
At that time, Kenny Ausubel was an award-winning journalist and filmmaker. As a reporter and as a citizen deeply concerned about the emerging environmental crisis, he'd been scouting for real solutions to major environmental challenges. In 1989, he co-founded Seeds of Change, a company dedicated to reviving backyard biodiversity to bolster food security. He coined the word pioneers to describe people who are looking to nature as a mentor, teacher, and model. Through experiences that I had, I'd begun to meet people, um, biologists, public servants, architects, ocean-related scientists, all sorts of interesting people who one by one by one seemed to have somehow peered into some interesting window of biology and found a solution for major environmental problems. And what surprised me was that none of these people knew each other. Although their work to me seemed very related, they had never spoken and were totally unaware of each other. And the public certainly never got any of this information. So what I ended up doing was to convene a gathering, a conference uh, in 1990, which I called the Bioneers. And the idea was that they were biological pioneers because the common thread in all of their work was that they were working within the biological paradigm and they all talked about the coming age of biology. And in the simplest terms, what that really means is that, you know, human culture is really a subset of ecology. Um, We live within the limits of the natural world and ecology is based on limits. And so what these people were doing were really defining this web of relationships, which is the essence of ecology in that way and of biology. And they talked about values like kinship, that um, on a molecular level, there's far more in common among all the organisms of life than there is different. You know, it's a fraction of DNA that separates the human being from being a chimpanzee and so forth. Um, It's also all connected. It's all totally interdependent. You know, life is really not a food chain. It's a food web. And what you very quickly find in nature is there is no waste. Everything is somebody's lunch of either food or energy. There are no byproducts. There are only products in that sense. And how might we live our lives differently if we understood that waste equals food, you know? Um, So these were the kinds of values that they talked about. You know, they said what we really need for the coming millennium is a declaration of interdependence because that's actually what runs our little biological world here. In 1990, Kenny Ossabel founded the environmental organization Bioneers with his wife and business partner, Nina Simons. We see these people as extraordinary independent innovators in a variety of fields who have demonstrated that individuals really can make a difference. At the time, Nina Simons was also working with Seeds of Change. When she and Kenny launched the first Bioneers conference, she brought her background in theater and the arts to create a kind of theater of the art of nature. I think one of the many things that's unique about this community is that we really bring together all aspects of Earth restoration, including the cultural, the spiritual, the political, the economic, as well as the biological. What we've found as we've explored and learned from this numerous really innovative visionaries is that uh, sustainability really may not be enough at this time, that in fact what sustainability alludes to is finding an equilibrium between the amount that you use of the Earth's resources and the amount that you put back, and that in fact there's been so much damage done over the last several decades especially that in fact what we need to embark upon now is a strategy of restoration, of how we really give back more than we take rather than just finding the equilibrium. So that's why restoration is a really important guiding principle in our work. 
There's a quote that I read just recently by Maladoma Somme, who's an African teacher and author um, in the Bay Area. And one of the things that he said was, it's human to make mistakes. It's not human to go on enjoying the mistakes. And I think that, you know, the reality is that we are living in a time of such serious degradation and depletion of the Earth's resources that, in fact, we need to learn from nature and from Gaia and from the Earth how to best restore her abundance. Because, in fact, it's an exquisitely abundant system that we live in. And I think the Bioneers tend to be characterized by a sense of humility and a real openness to learning and exploring more deeply the extraordinarily elaborate and intricate systems that nature has evolved. Nina Simons became a bioneer, and she liked the unusual cast of characters she discovered working to restore Earth's natural state of abundance. For instance, the globally renowned biologist and impassioned broadcaster, writer, and educator David Suzuki. He's brought life to life for millions around the world. As I reflected on the lessons that I've gained... I realized that we've framed the environmental problem the wrong way. There is no environment out there, and we're here, and we've got to regulate our interaction with it. We are the environment. There is no distinction. And what we are doing... What we are doing to our surroundings, we're doing directly to ourselves. Now, this is not rocket science. This is the the most obvious thing when you think about it. You know, we don't think about air, but from the moment every one of us left our mother's body to the last gasp on our deathbed, we need air 15 to 40 times a minute. We breathe air deep into the most moist, warm, intimate parts of our bodies, and we fuse to the air. When you think of the, the destiny of the air we breathe in, our lungs are filled with about 300 million alveoli, these little capsules, we need all of those alveoli to make the, uh, the surface area to come into contact with the air. If you flattened out all of the alveoli onto two dimensions, it would, they would cover a tennis court. So that much surface area is all wrinkled up into our lungs. And then along lining each alveolus is a three-layered membrane called a surfactant. The surfactant reduces surface tension, so when the air comes into contact with it, it fuses to the surfactant. Carbon dioxide rushes out. Oxygen and whatever else is in that air is sucked into our bodies. The oxygen is picked up by red blood cells and with every beat of our heart, that oxygen is delivered to all parts of our bodies. The point is, you can't draw a line and say the air ends here and I begin there. There is no line. The air is in us, it's fused to us, and it's circulating throughout our bodies. We are the air in the most profound way. And when I tell children that we are the air and that air isn't a vacuum or empty space, it's a physical substance, so what comes out of my nose goes straight up yours, they immediately go, (gasps) (laughs) you know, I guess they think we've got a little bubble of air that's Mark, Mary, or Johnny. Air is not... Air is a substance that embeds us. The whole American notion that we're, you know, John Wayne riding in the, in the saddle, uh, rugged individualist is nonsense. We're not separate individuals. We're tied together by the matrix of air that embeds us with not just human beings, but, but the trees and the birds and the snakes and the worms that are all using that air. David Suzuki fusing past, present, and future through the sacred element of air, because it's all alive, and it's all connected, and we're all connected. 
molecular biology is a great way for understanding just how interconnected we all are. Jeremy Narby ups the ante. As the author of the book Intelligence in Nature and as an anthropologist, he finds all life is also connected by a pervasive intelligence. If you just look into the human biology of the being a walking cell bag, excuse my reductionism, and, uh, you know, just the fantastic, just how wonderful it is that I was one cell, a fertilized egg, and then it's diversified into 250 different cell types, and then it set it up in the form that it's in with a nicely wired brain, and, you know, and it self-repairs itself, and all these uh, 100,000 billion cells sending each other signals and committing suicide sometimes to be replaced when sunburn happens, and, you know, setting themselves up to be the being that I am, in a kind of constant form, you know, it's, it's fantastically interesting. And then you look at how a nematode worm, which has 959 cells, is set up, and you can see that this is just a variation. I, I am a variation on a nematode worm. It has a mouth, a digestive tract, 300 neurons, and uh, a cuticle, and its cells are sending each other the same signals that my cells are. You know, we, we are physico-chemical cousins, the worm and I, the hummingbird and the otter, the rose, the elephant, the carrot and the giraffe. We are family, including the anaerobic bacteria that are living with the volcano vents at the bottom of the ocean. You know, this whole biospheric, organic thing that surrounds the molten rock, which is the planet, and gives it air and blueness and breathability and constant temperature. It's just a fantastic thing. You know, and you can actually get your mind blown just by understanding the science of, you know, the biology of our beings and of the biosphere. Jeremy Narby. From our cousin the worm to the otter, the carrot, and the rose, we are family. So what can we learn from our relatives about how to live on Earth for the long haul? After all, most of them have been here a whole lot longer than we have. For years I've been studying animals and all kinds of organisms and their incredible hand-in-glove co-evolution with their places and the fact that they manage to live in those places without destroying them. Janine Benyus is a naturalist and author who studies the genius of nature for cues and clues. She's helped to define the emerging science called biomimicry, innovation inspired by nature. And Biomimicry, Innovation Inspired by Nature is the title of her landmark book. She agrees with the old saw that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Wood frogs that freeze solid and spring back to life for about 60 million needles on a western hemlock that tilt like level or blinds to get exactly the right sunlight. Or uh, snails that travel on mucus, on slime that absorbs 1,500 times its weight in water. A snail can climb up and over a razor blade without hurting itself. Hummingbirds that can fly 35 miles an hour, fly forward, backward, straight up, straight down, and can explode across the Gulf of Mexico 600 miles in a nonstop flight on 2.1 grams of fuel. And the neat thing about the hummingbird is that in the process of fueling up. It actually pollinates the flower, which ensures that next year there'll be more fuel. So it actually enhances 
the place that it lives. It actually creates the conditions conducive to life, not just its own life, but the life of other organisms that it needs. And it occurred to me (laughs) that there are enormous numbers of people now who are asking the question, how can we live in a way that creates conditions conducive to life? Benyus points out that life has 3.8 billion years of research and development under its belt. What's still here is what works. It's what we can learn from and emulate. One of the big paradigm flips is how nature makes materials. All of those materials, the organism, has to live in its manufacturing plant. I mean, it manufactures in or near its body. I mean, what if you had to put your kids to sleep at night in your manufacturing plant? I mean, that's what it's akin to. So life has learned ways to manufacture incredible materials. And it's quite a flip from the way we do. When we make a material, pretty much take a a bulk material, and then we carve it down into what we want. And that's why we have over 95% waste in most of our products. We carve it down into what we want. And we do that with what's called, with material scientists call heat, beat, and treat. Okay? They say, what's the heat, beat, and treat on that material? So, for instance, Kevlar. Okay? We take petroleum. Kevlar's our, our toughest, strongest fiber. It's what's in flak jackets. It's made of petroleum. We take petroleum and we heat it up to 1400 degrees Fahrenheit in a vat of bubbling sulfuric acid, okay? which is nasty stuff. And then we draw it out under enormous pressures. And we come up with a fiber that is really tough and really strong and will last for 20,000 years in a landfill. Okay? And we'll stop bullets. Now, a spider can't do that. Okay? A spider also has to make a fiber. But what the spider does is it takes flies and crickets at one end, whatever flies into the web sort of thing, and instead of carving it from the top down. It actually builds from the bottom up. That's how nature makes materials, from the bottom up. It templates at the DNA level. That's where the recipe for the protein is. It templates exactly what it wants. Okay, So it takes takes the flies and crickets, it breaks those molecules down, and it reassembles them. Actually, they self-assemble. That's the other trick that nature uses. Those molecules self-assemble into a protein into actually two proteins. It's a composite. And it's a li- it forms a liquid crystal inside the abdomen in water. We don't often do chemistry in water. Nature always does. That's another flip. It squeezes this liquid protein out one of its six nozzles, these little spinnerets at the, at the end of its abdomen. Each of those spinnerets creates a different material property of silk. We've only really studied one, which is dragline silk squeezes it out through the spinneret, and out comes a fiber that is five times stronger, ounce for ounce, than steel. And it's biodegradable. And if the spider doesn't have a fly and cricket, it can turn around and eat its web to make more web. Okay, so it's... But well, it's what, what material scientists are trying to learn, they're, they, they're not going to farm spiders. It's not about that. It's about how do we remake the way we manufacture so that we do it in water, at room temperature, without toxins, 
and create a biodegradable fiber that is just astounding. And so the, the paradigm would be materials made of abundant carbon sources that self-assemble. And there's a lot, I mean, there's, there's hundreds of people studying this. Janine Benyus suggests that creating conditions conducive to life makes for a pretty good mission statement for planet Earth. So what does that look like on the ground, or under the ground, where mycomagician Paul Stamets looks? A globally revered expert on mushrooms and fungi, he's helped invent a whole new field of mycoremediation to clean up contaminated landscapes. Because as a pioneer, he knows that in nature, there is no waste. Everything is someone's lunch of food or energy. You just need to know whom to invite to the party. There's a diesel spill um, up near Bellingham, Washington. And I believe the story goes the Department of Ecology was fining the Department of Transportation of Washington State, one bureaucracy going after the other because, you know, they're treated like any other individual. They need to clean up their act. And so there was competition between different bioremediation processes. And so there was like, uh, I think, five or six piles, um, 100 feet long, you know, 15, 20 feet wide, uh, three to four feet high. And uh, everybody, all these different companies had a stab at trying to be able to break down the hydrocarbons that are saturated in the soil. So I already knew from my prior experience, well, I've got a pretty good candidate here. You know, let's, let's try this one. And so we went up there and um, we inoculated our pile and the bacteriologist groups and the kind of the, the chemical freaks were up there with their methodology and and uh, the piles were divided up and assembled, and we inoculated ours. Uh, and then one of our researchers went up, uh, you know, she asked me, well, how long should I wait? And I go, well, about five, six weeks. She was about perfect. And she went up there at that, that six-week interval. And it, and it was kind of like uh, the rendezvous of scientists, and everybody's looking at the different piles. And pile A you know, it looks like a pile of black soil, you know, smelling like diesel. Pile B, pile C, pile D. And it came to our pile, and we had tarped it over. And uh, uh, she lifted up the tarp, and she screamed in astonishment. And all the other scientists rushed over, and they were, in this case, oyster mushrooms, you know, 12 inches in diameter, fruiting off of this pile, just a magnificent fruiting of mushrooms. I mean, it had come to life. Um, and there was no odor that was symptomatic of, of the aromatic hydrocarbons that evolve off. And that was a, a real good kind of nose test. Not only were we successful in reducing hydrocarbons, but what has occurred there is uh, an example of what happens with mushrooms in nature. All the other piles were totally anemic of life. There was no revegetation whatsoever. Our pile produced several flushes of mushrooms. The mushrooms rot. Bacteria starts growing on them. Flies come in, lay eggs in the mushrooms. Maggots start to grow. It attracts other predatory insects, birds, carries in seeds. Plants started to grow, and our pile turned into an oasis of life. And it sprung. And this is what these things are. These are, uh, I call them keystone species, which cataclysmically cause a downstream effect of regenerating life. Paul Stamets, turning to the ancient intelligence of mushrooms and fungi to transform poisoned land into an oasis of life. And by the way, as human beings, we share 30% of our DNA with our fungal relations. Coming up, how human-induced climate change is precipitating a natural design revolution, starting with the cessation of human stupidity. 
and how visionary pioneers are reinventing the economy based on nature's intelligence. Because you can expect ecological services on this planet. This is Natural Magic, the Earth Hospitality Enterprise. I'm Neil Harvey. You're listening to a special program of the Bioneers: Revolution from the Heart of Nature. Bios means life. Life. Mimicry means imitate. Imitate. Life runs on some basic principles, deep patterns. Deep, deep patterns. We can study and follow those rules, change our tune, sing along. Life's beautiful song. Bios means life. Life. Mimicry means imitate. Imitate. Every species that survives fits in here. Fits in here. Hey, Homo sapiens, it's our time. We might be young, but it can be done. Bios means life. Life. Mimicry means imitate. Bios means life. This program is supported in part by Rabobank N.A., a California community bank that provides personalized service and a full array of banking products to individuals, businesses, and agricultural clients. With nearly 120 retail branches, Rabobank serves the needs of communities from Reading to the Imperial Valley. On the web at www.rabobankamerica.com. To explore more Bioneers radio shows and conference videos for free, visit Bioneers.org. When we fight nature, we lose. Humanity is getting that environmental education the hard way these days. Just check out climate change, a.k.a. global weirding. When you change the temperature, you change everything on the surface of the Earth. This is the quintessential moral issue of this moment. Back in 1989, when journalist Bill McKibben wrote The End of Nature, the first book for a popular audience about climate change, it was already becoming clear that the bonfire of the fossil fuels was going to poach the planet and cause extremes of all sorts that our brittle human systems are not built to withstand or easily adapt to. It has also long been clear what some of the remedies are. The solutions to the, especially to these problems of climate change are fairly obvious. We have to change from fossil fuels to other energy technologies, and we have to spread those other technologies around the world very quickly. And we have to rein in our general appetites to some degree or another. The alternative technologies that we need to change to exist, and they become more powerful and useful all the time. Things like wind energy and solar energy and fuel cell technologies. It's not that we don't know how to do this work now. We do. It's that it remains minimally more expensive than fossil fuels. Not a lot more expensive, not twice the price, but a little more expensive. Fossil fuels are essentially free now. We've got to change that equation, um, price those things to reflect their environmental cost. If you did that, Wind power and solar power and things will be much cheaper already. That transition is going to be difficult only because of the immense power of the coal and oil and gas industry. If 
we can overcome that, and we have to overcome it, we'll be making enormous strides towards dealing with these problems. The question is, how quickly do we overcome it? Uh, this is the quintessential moral issue of this moment. It is as important as the civil rights movement was a generation ago, and it demands the same level of personal commitment and sacrifice that those sort of things did. And until we make that effort, the coal companies and the oil companies and the gas companies aren't going to roll over on their own. They're going to be made to do the right thing, and at the moment no one's making them. And that's why we're not making the progress we could be. Bill McKibben is helping lead a growing global movement to get off fossil fuels as soon as possible. One of the most prominent design and technology visionaries on the front lines is Amory Lovins, the CEO and co-founder of the Rocky Mountain Institute, a think-and-do tank that, as he puts it, is reinventing fire to create a restorative and profitable energy system. It augurs nothing less than the redesign of human civilization. How clean a car would you buy if the exhaust pipe, instead of being aimed at pedestrians, were simply plumbed into the passenger compartment? Well, probably pretty clean. Yet we all live downwind and downstream of the products we make. And sometimes, says Lovins, intelligent design begins simply with the cessation of stupidity. An international company recently experienced its own sudden cessation of stupidity. They were redesigning a standard industrial pumping loop, which is a very common thing in industry and big buildings, slated for installation in a new uh, Shanghai factory. And uh, this had been supposedly optimized by the top European firm to use 95 horsepower for pumping. But I brought a little art from our wizard, Mr. Lee, in Singapore to a brilliant Dutch engineer, Jan Schillem, who made two embarrassingly simple design changes that cut the pumping power from 95 horsepower down to 7 horsepower, a 92% reduction. And yet this 12-fold reduction reduced the capital cost and made it work better in every respect. This did not require any new technology, but rather two changes in the design mentality. First of all, Jan chose big pipes and small pumps instead of small pipes and big pumps. The friction in a pipe, you see, goes down as almost the fifth power of its diameter. And normal engineering practice <clears throat> balances the higher capital cost of a fatter pipe against the pumping energy you save over the years from having less friction. But that textbook optimization is wrong because it ignores the capital cost of the pumping equipment, the pump and motor and inverter and electricals, that all have to be big enough to overcome the friction in the pipes. If you ignore that potential equipment saving, and optimize one part of the system, the pipes, in isolation, then you pessimize the system. What you ought to do is optimize the whole system at once, and then you find if you make the pipe somewhat bigger, the equipment gets somewhat smaller, you save a lot more money on that than you pay extra for the fatter pipe, so the whole thing gets cheaper and works better. Jan's second innovation was even simpler, therefore more difficult. That's to lay out the pipes first, then the equipment that it connects. What we normally do is plunk down the tanks and boilers and stuff in some arbitrary place and then tell the pipe fitter to come in and connect point A to point B. But by then, you know, they're far apart, there's stuff in between, they're facing the wrong way, they're at the wrong height. So the pipe has to go through so many curlicues to get from A to B that friction goes up roughly three to six-fold. Now, the, the pipe fitters don't mind this in the least. They're paid by the hour. They mark up the extra pipes and fittings. They don't pay for your oversized pumping equipment. They don't pay your inflated electric bill ever after. But clearly, it's smarter to use short straight pipes than long crooked pipes. 
And by the way, when you do that, you also get a lot of other benefits. For example, it's easier to insulate short straight pipes. So you also save, in this case, 70 kilowatts of heat loss with a three-month payback. And the reason I've spent a little time on this example is not just that pumps use the biggest amount of motor energy, which is three-fifths of all the electricity in the world, but also that exactly the same design lessons, optimizing whole systems for multiple benefits, apply to practically everything that uses energy, because we've made the same mistake practically everywhere. And when you take this sort of thinking seriously, you end up optimizing energy-using systems from a a factory process line to a, a whole building to use on the order of three to ten times less energy but work better and cost less. As Amory Levins illustrates, when you imitate nature by optimizing the design of the whole system, it benefits just about everything, including economics, or perhaps call it economics. Paul Hawken agrees. As an entrepreneur and best-selling author of iconic books such as The Ecology of Commerce and Natural Capitalism, Hawkins says that the emphasis of natural capitalism is on the restoration and conservation of natural capital. Today we have a very expanded and different sense of what nature is. Most importantly, we understand nature as a flow of services that we take for granted, which cannot be and gratefully commodified and are not bought and sold, but which absolutely influence and dictate the quality of our life on this planet and from whence all so-called economic value is derived. And these flow of services, which we take for granted, include pollination, oxygen, global climatic stability, riparian systems, fisheries, soil fertility, topsoil control, erosion, flood catchments, etc. And what we do know absolutely is that in the last 50 years that every living system on earth is in decline and the rate of decline is speeding up. And as I want to say to CEOs, if they ever listen to me or when they do, is that you need not know anything else about the environment except that fact in order to know what to do. And I'll say that again, every living system is in decline and the rate of decline is accelerating. So natural capitalism is saying, well, if you have an economy where the limiting factor to development is living systems and a whole array of principles emerge from that, quickly they are first, you don't just make things more efficient. You go to leapfrog technologies of radical resource productivity. In other words, you reduce our impact and our footprint on the environment by 80, 90 percent over the next 40 to 50 years. The second principle is biomimicry. Biomimicry is taking, obviously, nature as a mentor, as a model, and looking at that for inspiration. Again, out-of-the-box, breakthrough, leapfrog thinking in how we design our molecules, our systems, our processes, and what it is that we do and make and how uh, we process those uh, elements. The third principle, service and flow, first articulated by Walter Stahel, a Swiss economist who simply said that made the obvious observation that if we're going to create an economic system that has any semblance or resemblance to biological systems, it can no longer think of itself as the episodic manufacturer of goods, but actually a deliverer of a flow of services, which is, after all, what we receive from nature, and that in that flow of services, the materials, the molecules, the compounds themselves must be carefully marshaled and monitored such that they're either made 
for living systems and can biodegrade and be reconstituted, or they are technical nutrients which must be returned to industrial systems. And there is no exception. There is no landfills in the society. There is no baby's bones in which to put our waste chemicals, right? So this is the service and flow concept. And the last is the restoration of natural capital, which is that we cannot just simply organize ourselves to be effective or efficient or productive, but we have to organize our industrial systems in such a way that our oceans, our soil, our waters, our repairing systems, and our climate are restored step by step by step, that this has to be a natural act of what we do. Paul Hawken, Restoration, a natural process in a system where life creates conditions conducive to life. A biological bottom line that in turn can create a prosperous economy and a reliable prosperity. Ecological services for earth hospitality. The word ecology comes from the Greek word oikos that means earth household. It's a whole different way of looking at home economics. But what does this new home economics actually look like on the ground? Just ask restorative rancher Dan Daggett, who inspires collaboration between family ranchers who are proud to define themselves as land stewards and environmentalists who say livestock production is destroying the American West. When we look at the the most basic forms of matter, the smallest things, that we find out that they're not things at all. We, We find out that they're relationships, and we find out that they're connections to other relationships and and what you end up with is a world of relationships and then i thought well that means we live in a world of relationships and not a world of things and so i got to thinking what does that mean for me as an environmentalist and what it means is that uh, sustainability healthy ecosystems healthy environments are a function of sustainable of healthy of functional relationships Dan Daggett is the author of the Pulitzer Prize-nominated book Beyond the Rangeland Conflict, Toward a West That Works. He's part of a new global movement to apply biomimicry to rangeland restoration. And the results speak for themselves, such as the story of ranchers Tony and Jerry Tipton. They decided to take the worst place they could find, the steep, toxic, utterly barren mountainside of an abandoned gold mine to demonstrate how recreating nature's ancient pattern of ecological relationships between grasslands and hooved animals actually creates abundant life. Instead of the original buffalo, they used what we now have a lot of, cows. They decided that they would recreate the relationships and make up a healthy grassland, which includes grazing animals interacting with the grass, a cycle. The animals eat the grass. They do things for the grass by fertilizing it, by moving the seeds, by removing the duff that's produced every year and becomes a liability because it shades the ground and shades the growth centers of the grass, that sort of thing. By by injecting their own microflora from their guts into the soil. So what they did was they, there was nothing on the gold mine to attract any animals to go there, so they spread hay on it, more hay than the animals could eat because they wanted to have some organic material there to start the soil building process and the the slope of this breastworks for this dam is steep enough that you can just barely walk up it you almost have to put out your hand to help yourself get up 
And so it was it was steeper than cattle normally will venture onto. But they were using the hay to, to attract them. The neighbors, because it was in Nevada, of course, the neighbors were all parked along the roads right near there. And they were all betting that it wouldn't work, that the cows wouldn't go up there, that some of them wouldn't fall down and break their leg and all this sort of stuff. But they put 32 tons of hay on this basically a 10-acre site. More than the cows could eat. The cows stomped it in, and they they went up on the sides of it. They they made paths back and forth across it. They made these sort of mini terraces in it, to, and instead of this slope that just would erode easily. Now there were things to stop the erosion. But then they pounded in also the seeds that had been spread there beforehand. And the cattle were on it for uh, about six days, and they took the cattle off, and then they waited. And it was winter time. It snowed some. They got some moisture there about six inches over the winter. And the next spring, when it's, the ground started to warm up, it was just amazing. You know, this this scar that had been on the hillside that you could see for miles around, all of a sudden it was the most brilliant green that you could see anywhere in the landscape because it was completely covered with grass seedlings. And the grass seedlings grew, and over the summer, and then we have pictures of people standing in those grasses on a place that was nothing but bare dirt beforehand, and now the grass is up to their waist. In one year, it had gone from that, from dead, non-functioning, a liability, to now it was a functioning ecosystem. And they had done it just by recreating the relationships that define a functional grassland ecosystem. It's now being used all over Arizona to reclaim these things that they had no idea what to do with. But, you know, what I take from that is it really is about relationships and not about things. Regenerating life by recreating nature's time-tested relationship economy. Because ecology is the art of relationships. When we return, we get to the heart of reinventing fire, conjure up some natural magic, and transform into poetic pragmatists and pilot fish. I'm Neil Harvey. This is Natural Magic, the Earth Hospitality Enterprise, a special program of the Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. You got a problem, you have doubts. You got a question that you can't figure out. You'll find an answer to or for. All you gotta do is step out your door and ask the planet. Pose a question to opposing. Ask the planet. Don't worry, it won't think you're nosy. Ask the planet. Ask the ocean or the prairie. Ask the planet. Something scaly. To explore more Bioneers radio shows and conference videos for free, visit Bioneers.org. You're listening to a one-hour Bioneers special program. I'm Neil Harvey. This is Natural Magic, the Earth Hospitality Enterprise. The Bioneers herald a revolution from the heart of nature and from the human heart. So let's get to the heart of the matter. We are in crisis. 
We are in an economic crisis, but it goes far beyond the exigencies of not being able to pay for medical care. We are in an environmental crisis, but it goes beyond the abuse and the neglect of an environment. Fundamentally, these are the epiphenomenon of a greater, graver crisis, and that is a failure to respect men, women, and children, a failure to honor humanity, to honor life, and a failure to ask with each thought, is this life-giving, is this life-sustaining, or is this destructive? Dr. Jean Achteberg is a scientist and healthcare leader who has received international recognition for her pioneering research in medicine and psychology. Her book, Imagery and Healing, is critically acclaimed as a classic in the field of mind-body studies. Her findings suggest that honoring human values makes a big difference in the health of communities all over the world. Well, the best that we can say, the most reductionistic thing that we can say, is that relationships are stress buffers. Study after study showing that people in relationship have increased immune function, decreased wound healing time, lower sympathetic nervous system activity. We know that you can't hardly kill a married man, even if he's not really wild about his wife. It's true. And that we know that women who have girlfriends live forever. Data. Relationships themselves, according to the research, are a panacea. Decreased incidence of death from all major causes. Imagine the stock in a pharmaceutical firm that could make this claim. Outrageous. Heart disease, cancer, accidents, on and on and on. Being together on this life raft, in this sea, is a panacea. Dr. Achteberg says that individual relationships are personal medicine. And that also holds true for healing bonds at the community level. And this is the one that's the juiciest for many of us right now because there is so much research. And the research goes back 30 and 40 years, prospective studies, thousands and thousands of people, showing that the community web of family, friends, work, support group, and other things is truly healing. And I love the story about the the, uh, community in Pennsylvania, the Rosetta community, which was full of Italians who had the nerve to smoke, drink, sit around, didn't exercise, and they got fat. And the epidemiologists were appalled because they only had half the cardiac disease of all the neighboring communities. <laughs> and the prediction, the prediction was made, and no one was disappointed, that once they migrated out of their family roots, their cultural roots, into the, the mainstream, that they would lose their advantage, um, cardiovascular advantage, and sure enough, they did. So the community web, pay attention. Now, the... Healing bond that is perhaps most intriguing is the bond of love, and we need to ask what love has to do with it. Um, Or maybe somebody's already asked that, do you think? (laughs) Is love, in fact, caring? Is it health-promoting? But is it life-saving? So what do people in crisis want? What do people in health crisis want? What is it that we can do as health care providers, as intelligent consumers? 
Epidemiological research from all over the world shows that people basically go into the healthcare system, spiritual health, mental health, physical health, to get relief from suffering. They go into their healthcare systems to get information. But every single piece of evidence points to the fact that when they are also given sympathy, compassion, understanding, all of the medicines that are prescribed tend to work better. Is this so difficult for us to understand? Must we keep going back and back to the bases of who we are as human beings and what it's like to continue to live life on this planet? I don't know. I would like to um, share with you some remarks from someone much wiser than me about the nature of compassion, the nature of human relationships, the nature of love. It's Teilhard de Chardin, the great mystic, scientist, Jesuit priest. He says that love is the free and imaginative outpouring of the spirit over all unexplored paths. And he says that someday, after we have mastered the winds, the waves, the tides, and gravity, we shall harness for good, for God, the energies of love. And then, for the second time in the history of the world, we will have discovered fire. Jean Achterberg, The Science of Reinventing Fire of the Heart. There has been a tradition in the West of people speaking on behalf of science, claiming that science had a power greater than something that gathers information for us. And, and I think that has happened to leave a lot of people feeling negative about science. But I want to be positive about science. The late Dr. John Mohawk was an internationally acclaimed Iroquois scholar and professor. He was encouraged to see the previously estranged worlds of Western natural science and indigenous science come together in the Bioneers. I think that we are now beginning to have a moment when it's possible for people across cultures to have a, a positive, solitary view of nature. Nature is what keeps us alive. It's not our enemy. It's what gave us life in the first place. The, the fundamental things of nature, from the air we breathe to the water we drink to the food that we eat, every one of these has been altered from the way our ancestors experienced those things. I have to say that everything, the earth itself, the, I mean, the, when you pick it up and look at it and you analyze it, it's not the same. Everything has been changed. And yet, if nature's sacred, it would be our mind <laughs> to change it back, <laughs> to make it the way it was when it was supportive of life on the earth, to make the food the way it was, to make the water the way it was, to make the air the way it was, to make our bodies and the bodies of everything on the planet the way it was, the way nature made it to be. And nature is so complex. It is, its interactions so dynamic. It is so non-static that the, the idea that science could ever understand it all is absolutely utterly laughable. This is an unimaginably complex machine. We can understand the more simple things that we do to interfere with it, to degrade it, to wreck it. But we can never understand it. It is beyond our comprehension. The, the culture I came from saw the universe as the fountain of everything, including conscience, 
including everything. In fact, in our culture, in a way, we're, we're, we're scolded for being so arrogant as to think that we're smart, that an individual is not smart, according to our culture. An individual is just merely lucky that he's part of a system that has this intelligence that happens to reside in them. You know, in other words, be humble about this always, that uh, the real intelligence isn't the property of an individual, a corporation or something. The real intelligence is, is the property of the universe itself. I can see now that there are scientists who think that way too. And in that regard, it seems to me, natural world people and contemporary people, scientific people, all kinds of other people, even business people, all kinds of people, can kind of be on the same side as something. Dr. John Mohawk, describing a change of mind to go with a change of heart. Observing diverse worlds coming together on the side of nature. Again, Nina Simons. The physicist, ecologist, and activist Vandana Shiva from India offered some crucial distinctions between a bioneer and a pioneer. She suggested that the age of biology is going to have not one, but two kinds of bioneers. One, she said, will look very much like the pioneers who thought that every land they conquered was an empty land. It had no people. It had no prior inhabitants, so they saw no need to respect any rights. Ecological pioneers, on the other hand, recognize that every step we take is on a full earth, peopled by a tremendous variety of species and many other people. For ecological pioneers, she said, we know that limits are the first law of nature encoded in the ecological processes that make life possible. Limits of the nutrient cycle in soil, limits of the water cycle, the limits set by the intrinsic right of diverse species to exist set limits on our actions if we genuinely respect other beings. Ethical limits are what makes us human. To be sustainable, a society must live within those limits. Vandana spoke of a Hindi word that means earth family or the democracy of life, explaining that to pioneers it means not just diverse human cultures, but all beings. The mountains and the rivers are beings too. Ecological pioneers respect all the beings, large and small, without a hierarchy of superiority and inferiority, because everything has a part to play ecologically in the web of life, even if we do not fully understand how. Being a pioneer also means recognizing that just as the web of life is interconnected and interdependent, so too are all the issues we face. There is no separation between people and environment. We are part of nature and we are all connected. It's not a question of whether society is going to change in these directions. It already is changing in these directions. And really, we don't have any other alternative. This, this is the future. And so we're very fortunate that these people have done all this work at this point and that it exists because the pioneers are kind of like the pilot fish. And they're really going to be able to help guide society in this truly momentous transition. Kenny Osabel, Nina Simons, and the Bioneers, leading a revolution from the heart of nature and the human heart. 
because it's all alive, it's all connected, it's all intelligent, and it's all relatives. And the revolution is love. Many more Bioneers radio programs and conference videos are available online for free at Bioneers.org, where you can also find out how to attend the annual Bioneers conference and local Bioneers satellite conferences near you. Bioneers voices are heard more widely with your support. Join by visiting Bioneers.org or call 1-877-BIONEER. The Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature is a production of Collective Heritage Institute. Executive producer, Kenny Ausubel. Written by Catherine Stifter and Kenny Ausubel. Senior producer, Neil Harvey. Managing producer, Stephanie Welch. Production management, Aaron Leventman and Sharon Pomerantz. Station relations by Creative PR. Distribution is by WFMT Radio Network. Interview recording engineers were Jeff Westman and Catherine Vibert. Our theme music is taken from the album Journey Between by Baca Beyond and used by permission of Hannibal Records, a Rykodisc label. Additional music was made available by Sounds True at SoundsTrue.com. Amy Martin and the Missoula Coyote Choir at AskThePlanetCD.com. Jamie Sieber at JamieSieber.com. Lori Ann Speed at Lori-AnnSpeed.com. Acoustic Music Records at acoustic-music.de and Manifest Spirit Music at clint at manifestspirit.com For more music information, visit bioneers.org. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the presenters and are not necessarily those of Collective Heritage Institute, the underwriters, or this radio station. My name is Neil Harvey. Thank you for listening. I invite you to join the Bioneers in inspiring a shift to live on Earth in ways that honor the web of life, each other, and future generations. This is program number 1411. This program was made possible in part by Organic Valley Family of Farms, organic and family-owned since 1988. Learn more at organicvalley.coop. Also by Park Foundation, dedicated to heightening public awareness of critical issues, as well as by the generous support of listeners like you.